0: Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that if you do, you will turn in them to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 and the passage that Mark just read for us can be found on page 820 if you'd like to use one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs for you. Page 820. Although, as far as I've heard, there might be one or two in there with a little bit of a different page number. But most of them, at least, are on page 820. As I always like to say, if one of those Bibles would bless you, or you're curious to read it, or you have someone in your life that you'd like to give it to, please just take it. We'll be happy to replace it with a different one. Um, So, by all means, grab it and keep it forever, if if that would bless you. I think there is a temptation in what we might call Protestant, Reformed, Evangelical, American Christianity, to feel discouraged right now. There are all kinds of things that we could look around at and be upset about. We could be upset or disturbed about the state of the United States of America. There's always some kind of drama in the Christian church going on around us. There's stuff in our various communities that isn't always great for one reason or another. And any of us who is part of a family knows that there is often stress and relationship strain in families as well. I just think I've observed that in my life and in the lives of people I've talked to over the last several months, and in particular coming into what we might call the Advent or Christmas season, we look around, we assess the state of things around us and within us as being on the whole not right. And of course, we would be quick or we should be quick to say that along with that, there is plenty to be thankful for, plenty to be thankful happy about. Lots of reasons to smile. But at least in our assessment, we look around and we see a lot of brokenness. We see a lot of sorrow. We see a lot of suffering. We see a lot of sin that seems to outweigh that stuff that makes us happy or thankful. And you know, I think it's actually not an inaccurate assessment. It's certainly not good for us to constantly think about all the things that aren't right, but in terms of facts we're not incorrect. There are a lot of problems in the world around us, whether it is our specific homes or our communities that we live in or our state or our whole country or the whole world. So it can seem like there is little reason for hope. For optimism. For what I might call Christian zeal and passion. And I think that It's worth noting that a lot of this is going to be tied to everything that everybody went through in the last several years relating to COVID and shutdowns and deaths and political strife and all the things that have happened over the last several years. It took a toll on people's spirits. There's a case to be made that the pain and suffering of many kinds from 2020 and its aftermath, even years afterward, has wreaked some real havoc on our own emotions and our minds and our hearts. I've said this before, so pardon me for harping on it again, but for me, one reference point in our little church is the reality that there's less uh, verbal amens in a sermon than there was before 2020. And, and I think sometimes it seems like we've just gotten a little quieter, a little more somber. Life got really tough for a while, and we're still dealing with its after effects years later. And that's just one example of the many reasons why it might be, it might seem to many of us, that our lives have little reason for hope, little reason for passionate zeal for the truth and for life and for joy. And that's part of why I'm really looking forward to our time in four separate passages in the Minor Prophets this Advent season starting next week. I'm calling our series for Advent A Thrill of Hope, where we will see in Micah 5, hope for the weak. We'll see hope for the fearful in Zephaniah 3. We'll see hope for the sinful in Zechariah 3. And then hope for the cynical in Malachi 2 or as my dad and I like to call him, Malachi, the Italian prophet. As I was planning out our preaching calendar and looking at the timing of the passages and how it was all going to work out in relation to the Advent season, it was notable to me that our text in Matthew 14 was providentially arriving the week before we jump into our Advent passages, and on a Sunday when really we are kind of getting into Advent now. This passage isn't technically part of our Advent series. It's part of our Matthew series, our study in Matthew's Gospel that we're calling The Unexpected Kingdom. And this passage in Matthew 14 in verses 34 through 36 is often regarded as just another one of Jesus' many healings. And that makes sense. There's not really a lot of detail in Matthew 14, 34 through 36. But nevertheless, I think we'll see that this passage helps us get ready to spend four weeks in Advent. Because this passage is about the messianic ministry of Jesus. His ministry to the needy. His care for those in need. And that is a message that we all need. You might have a, a version of the Scriptures that have a heading above this section. Something like, Jesus heals many. Or Jesus's, or more of Jesus' many healings. My ESV has a more specific heading in this passage about healing the sick in Gennesaret, but if you go back to Matthew 8 or go forward to Matthew 15, we've got similar passages where it says something as simple as more healings, or Jesus's more, more healings of Jesus. But I don't think we ought to breeze past this passage like that. Let's settle in and take a closer look. The first thing, first thing we've got to notice about this text is the location of this event. It's called Gennesaret. And that is a district, or was, I should say, a district on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But the main thing to note about Gennesaret is that it was a beautiful and fertile place. You can actually visit it today, although it's not called Gennesaret now, it's called El Guir, and it has rich soil, flowing streams, plentiful crops and beautiful flowers and vegetation in fact the rabbis at the time of of Jesus's ministry on earth called it the garden of God it was a paradise Have any of you ever been to our own little Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs? It's easy to see when you're there why it would be named that way. It's got this transcendent kind of beauty. Our family's been there on a few occasions. Similarly with Gennesaret. And in fact, the name Gennesaret even has some word roots and connotations that have to do with gardens. So it's even in the name there. One one scholar I was referencing by the last name of Neubauer says that the fruits of Gennesaret had such high repute among the rabbis that those fruits were not allowed in Jerusalem during the feasts lest anyone might be tempted to come only for their enjoyment. That's how lush and fertile and delicious those fruits were regarded at that time. Now why do I point this out? Well, I'm not sure that Matthew was certainly intending for his readers to see a connection to God's Garden of Eden here. But I strongly suspect that the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew wants us to see, or at least think about that. I think the fact that Gennesaret was a beautiful garden that many in that region regarded as paradise and God's garden, but where there were still many sick and hurting people, and were brought to Jesus for help, should remind us that the original paradise that God created for His creatures to enjoy with Him was broken and cursed by sin. And as a result, even this other idyllic, paradise-like garden, Gennesaret, had broken and weary and sick and needy people there. Because, friends, you see, just like in Gennesaret then, Our world today is messed up. The Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs is beautiful, but not all is well there. Just like the paradise-esque garden of Gennesaret. And just like the paradise garden where the world started was cursed because of sin. Now every garden, every earthly paradise has at least some amount of stain of brokenness. What? Arriving in Gennesaret is Jesus. Jesus arrives and healing arrives with him. And that's what this passage is saying. When Jesus arrived at Gennesaret, healing arrived with him. And when we, brothers and sisters, think about Jesus' arrival at Christmas, we have to think similarly. The birth of Jesus was the arrival of, of the Savior, of the Messiah, whose ministry would usher in the healing of the Gospel, which is the message that in His love, God has made the way for broken, sinful people, His creation to be restored to a relationship with Him forever. Now in this brief passage where we see Jesus the Messiah ministering to needy people, I see three groups of three descriptions each Of Jesus' ministry. Group one is that his ministry in this passage was unavoidable, unrelenting, and unbiased. You see Matthew's description of the situation when Jesus gets to Gennesaret here. It says, when they crossed over, excuse me, when the men, in verse 35, of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all that were sick and implored him for help. So they recognize him, they spread the word that he's arrived, and then they gather a bunch of people to be healed. Just last year, our family uh, spent the $100 million it costs to go to Disneyland. And uh, as you may already know, there are in Disneyland these themed sections of the parks. And when you get into one of them, you might say it's like going into a whole new world. Anyway, one of those sections is is dedicated to Marvel's Avengers. Don't shake your head at me, Paul. It was a very good, very good pun. And they've got this cool thing in the Marvel's Avengers section where actors will come out dressed up in these really high quality costumes. And they walk around and they act like they're Avengers. And when one of them appears, it doesn't take long for The crowd to start buzzing and word to spread, oh look, Captain America's here or Iron Man's here or whomever else might appear at any moment. And then that leading to this swell and mass of people swarming around that that character for photographs and perhaps some chatting as well. And at the risk of making the majesty and glory of Jesus into something trite, his arrival at Gennesaret was accompanied with a similar kind of commotion that you could see at Disneyland when one of the Avengers comes out in whatever they call it, Avengers Land. Kind of like a celebrity sighting. And if you're not a a Marvel person, maybe you're more of a sports person, so just imagine how you would respond if you were in Denver and one of our Denver sports idols was out and about. I remember one time, I don't know if it was with the hearse or not, I know I was with my wife. We saw the then Nuggets player Danilo Gallinari out and about on the sidewalks and our little group of friends started buzzing that's Danilo Gallinari and we're kind of looking at him and wondering if he's going to walk past us we went to a Rockies game this summer and our kids and I were looking around oh there's so-and-so and there's so-and-so and look I can see him and and them we get excited we might even hope for an autograph it was kind of like that when Jesus arrived in Gennesaret People are saying, hey, that's the Jesus of Nazareth who I heard had done all those healings. Go back to town, get everybody who's sick, and bring him. The reason I'm using the word unavoidable here is because wherever Jesus went, word of his miraculous acts went before him. And thus, we've already seen in Matthew 14 that he could hardly get away for some time alone. He gets to the other side of the sea and it's not long after he steps foot on land that a crowd is gathering again and he's serving again. It was unavoidable for him. And the reason I use the word unrelenting is because it's not like he arrived and there were just a few people that he healed and then he went on his way. No, in verse 35 and 36 it says they sent to all that region and brought all the people who were sick and they implored him for help. In other words, it was non-stop. It was all of these people. It was lots of people with lots of needs pressing in on him, trying to merely touch his clothes in a desperate act of faith that maybe doing so could lead to healing. Why do I point this out? First of all, because I want our church to be amazed at how committed Jesus is to serving and saving needy people. Look at how gracious and how unwavering Jesus is in His mission and in His love. And also think about the fact that Jesus' ministry, I also use the word, was unbiased here. Gennesaret was not regarded as a bad place. Obviously, the garden was a, a big draw. But it was not regarded as an important place politically or in Jewish religion. And so Jesus' arrival to Gennesaret was nothing like His arrival to Jerusalem in terms of people's perceived importance. But to Jesus, there are no unimportant people. And there are no unimportant places. And so Jesus goes to Gennesaret too. And He serves them too. And that's important for us to note as well. Jesus is not focused only on places Or people that we might deem important. His ministry is not partial. His ministry is not prejudiced in that sense. He is just as interested in the people of Brighton, for example, as he is in the people of Denver, or of New York City, or of Marseille, France, or of the Gaza Strip, or of Ukraine and Russia. And he's just as interested in the people that we might deem as too difficult, too risky, too broken and messy for us to invest time in. Maybe someone shows up to church on a Sunday that you've never seen before and they seem like a relatively well-adjusted, stable, and even maybe spiritually mature person and we might go, aha, what a nice candidate for them to join our Christian club. But what if someone arrives with a serious handicap or someone with serious mental health problems or someone in dire financial straits who can't contribute to our giving needs Or someone who's following Jesus, but whose faith is wavering. Friends, Jesus' desire to open His arms to all who will embrace Him in faith is not biased towards or against anyone. They must simply come to Him in faith and repentance. So his ministry is unavoidable, unrelenting and unbiased. And the gospel, hope and healing of Jesus is given to all who come in faith, not just those who are the easiest, not just those for whom it is for for not just those when it's most convenient for us or people who are not messy to deal with. No, Jesus is willing to serve and save people with all kinds of problems from all kinds of places. Beloved of God, aren't you glad that He pursued and welcomed you? Aren't you glad that Jesus was willing to condescend into your messed up, baggage-laden life and this messed up and broken world with His unwavering love for you? That's the King we serve. That's the team that we're on. That's the message that we spread this Advent season. Well, here's the next group of ministry descriptions and characteristics in these verses. He was, or His ministry was misunderstood, merciful, and miraculous. Think about what Matthew doesn't say in these verses here. He doesn't say that when the crowds got to him, they fell on their knees and begged for forgiveness of sin and embraced him as the Messiah and as their king. It doesn't say that. Now, of course, it's certainly possible that some of them did that at least, but remember that what the scripture often portrays in the New Testament is these swarms of people around Jesus having an attitude of looking to get from him what they wanted, not give to him their allegiance. It becomes evident as you read the Gospels that so many people were expecting a military conqueror or a miracle performer. And some did come genuinely to hear his teaching, but many of them heard his teaching and did not embrace it. So often crowds came to Jesus because they wanted to see something that he could do or because they wanted to rally around him as the king that they were looking forward to or to hear him shake up the religious establishment. But what happened when Jesus did eventually get to Jerusalem? Once the people's desires didn't match his, they killed him. That's why I say Jesus' ministry was misunderstood. He gets to Gennesaret and everyone wants to be healed. And of course, in one important sense, there's nothing wrong with that. And we're about to see their belief that he could heal them led to their healing. Praise the Lord for his gracious healing in this event. How amazing to see God's chosen king exercise his power to bring restoration to this broken world in this moment. So in one important sense, there's nothing wrong with the fact that everybody wanted to come be healed. But in another sense... Isn't it also true that Jesus didn't literally heal everyone in the whole world of all their diseases at that moment? And haven't we already seen in our study of Matthew that the point of all of these healings of Jesus was ultimately to make clear that He was the chosen Messiah of God who had been promised. That He was the one who had come to save not everyone only from physical ailments, but from sin. Healings like Jesus had already done and was doing showed that He was the promised One that we read about in Isaiah 35. I have it on the screen for you. A call to the people of God to strengthen their weak hands and make firm their feeble knees and to say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy." But just a few sentences later, in Isaiah 35, verse 8, it also says that there will be a highway called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. In other words, it says that the salvation that the promised one would bring was not only physical, but also spiritual. That he would bring holiness, the holiness that God requires, along with the healing that we so long for. Because you see, my friends, physical healing was a vital and glorious and essential part of Jesus' ministry. It was not only, or you could potentially say merely a vehicle through which his central mission of revealing himself as the Messiah and accomplishing restoration between God and man would be accomplished. Healing did matter on its own too, for the sake of its evidence of his deity, but also for the sake of his actual love for people and mercy towards the needy. And that's where that second characteristic of this little group here, mercy, comes in. Because here's the good news in the midst of what's going on here in this passage. The kind of faith that is just desperate to touch Him is all that's required to receive His mercy and grace. Did you hear that? A desperation to merely touch the hem of His garment. Because you see, my friends, this is so important. Listen carefully. Jesus doesn't say... To you today, make sure all of your motives are perfectly pure and holy and religiously pious before coming to me for my love and grace. He simply says, Come. The fact that Jesus healed a bunch of people in this passage, some of whom probably didn't have correct or accurate theological, spiritual motivations in coming to him, ought to remind us that we don't have to clean up ourselves before coming to him. We just come to him in faith and he cleans us up. In mercy, in grace, he saves us. I mean, don't you think it's possible that some of the people that Jesus healed in Gennesaret turned out to not follow him at all? We're not given that information, but it's certainly possible. Jesus Himself said that there would be many one day who thought they were His because of their works, but who He never truly knew. And so, even though some, probably many, misunderstood what He was really there for, and they were merely looking for some supernatural solution to their physical problems, Jesus mercifully healed them anyway. That shows grace. That shows mercy. And verse 36, as we've already said, explicitly says that all they had to do was touch his garment, and his power goes out, and they're healed. And that's where I think we see this miraculous characteristic here. His miraculous divine power was on display in the healing of these sick bodies. Now, did you know that our bodies have something Or I could say it this way, we have something in common with Wolverine of the X-Men. You guys know who that is, at least the kids do. We have a healing factor. That's Wolverine's superpower. He has a healing factor. Did you know that? Our bodies actually heal themselves. The problem is, it's a lot slower than Wolverine's, and it doesn't always work. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a nasty bout with, with sickness that knocked me out for a couple of days, affected me for several more, hadn't been that sick in a while but I did get better eventually, and I feel fine now. My body recovered, and that's what usually happens when someone gets a, maybe we might say, a more ordinary ailment, like a cold or a stomach bug or the flu or whatever. They eventually, usually get better, and in my case, My mother lives down the street, and she likes to suggest some home remedies to speed up the process, like essential oils and bone broth and vitamins and supplements and so forth. But not once has she suggested to touch someone's shirt. You know why? Because that's not a normal way to be healed. That's a miraculous way to be healed. And that's how these people were healed. If you've got uh, an ESV in front of you, the phrase at the end of verse 36 is that they were made well. But some Greek scholars suggest that a better translation would be they were made perfectly well. If you have a CSB, a Christian Standard Bible in front of you, you have that phrase in front of you. Isn't that amazing? They touched his garment and they were made perfectly well. Don't let that be lost on you. Not a trace left of whatever ailed them. No lingering side effects. None of the disclaimers like in those commercials that sound worse than the problem you had in the first place. Just totally healed. It's interesting also to note that many Jewish religious leaders of that day would have made concerted efforts to avoid a crowd like this. Because they wouldn't want to rub shoulders with someone who was potentially ceremonially, and religiously unclean. But do you notice that the opposite happens with Jesus? When Jesus rubs shoulders, so to speak, with the crowd, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. He makes them clean. That's how powerful he is. They touch his garment and he overcomes their sickness. He overcomes And yes, he overcomes death. And so Jesus' ministry here displays his miraculous power when he healed the needy in this passage. But friends, remember his ministry later on showed the ultimate display of divine power when he himself was raised from the dead. Jesus' healings, brothers and sisters, were a kind of a foretaste for the resurrection that would come for him and the resurrection that is to come for all who trust in him. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the New Testament tells us that he was the first fruits or a forerunner of all who would experience that same resurrection, that perfect and total healing one day through becoming his children by faith. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Well, here's the third and final group of his ministry characteristics in this passage. Sacrificial, selfless, serving. And perhaps these are the most obvious in this passage. Especially if you remember the context of this passage with everything that precedes it in chapter 14. It wasn't long before this trip to Gennesaret that Jesus had learned, and if you have a Bible with headings in it, you can kind of get the idea just by skimming the page, that Jesus had learned that his cousin John, perhaps his dearest earthly friend, had been murdered. And right after that, he tries to go be alone, but a different crowd swarms him. And instead of retreating and even perhaps graciously saying, give me a few minutes, I'm grieving, rather with concerning himself with his own well-being, in verse 14 of chapter 14, He heals many in that crowd. And then He miraculously turns this little handful of loaves and fishes into a giant feast for thousands of people. And then He goes up onto the mountain to pray and commune with His Father. Then He comes down and He miraculously walks on the water and saves His disciples on the sea, teaches them about faith and doubt, and now here He is still at it. Serving. Serving. Selflessly. Sacrificially even. Subjecting himself to other people's needs. Putting others ahead of himself. What a humble king. You know, often, as you've experienced, at the end of a sermon, a preacher will seek to apply the text that we're studying to our daily lives. But friends, you need to know right off the bat, that you can't apply this one to yourself in some of the ways that we normally do. Because we're talking about the ministry of Jesus. And you're not Jesus. And you never will be. And so the application of this passage must not be simply, now go be just like Jesus, jump into unavoidable, unrelenting, and unbiased ministry where you're going to be misunderstood but merciful anyway, and miraculously powerful, all while being perfectly sacrificial and selfless in your service. Of course, some of that applies to us in some ways, but only to a point, because you and I aren't Jesus. And if we just read ourselves into passages like this that are ultimately about Jesus, we're going to get ourselves in trouble in our Bible study and start thinking that the Bible is all about us. And it's not, it's about Him. You remember what happened at the end of chapter 13? If you have an ESV like I do, the heading over that last passage in Matthew 13 is simply this. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Jesus goes to his hometown. Nazareth is where he was brought up. He sees people that he knows and he was rejected by them. And the last words of verse 58 or that whole verse is, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Those are tragic words. But what did Jesus do next? Chapter 14. Performs many mighty works in those places. Places like Gennesaret, like the Sea of Galilee out in the dark in the stormy waves, where many dangers, toils, and snares resided. Like this desolate place where the thousands came to him for healing and for food. You see, what I'm saying is that Jesus was rejected where he should have been most easily embraced, and so he went elsewhere to those who would have him. And friends, this is a most harrowing and sobering truth, that if you reject Jesus as God's king, he will move on from you eventually. He will mercifully save you no matter how long it takes you to come to Him. It could be your dying breath in which you embrace Him. You need only have the kind of faith that says, if I could simply touch His garment, I will be well, in order to experience His grace. But... If you continue to reject Him day after day, year after year, and eventually pass on from this life without ever embracing Him, you will one day stand before Him as judge, where His miraculous might will be used to judge instead of save. But friend, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done or what kind of life you live, you will be welcomed by Jesus when you come to Him in faith. And that has to be one of the biggest takeaways or the biggest takeaway from this whole chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel and this passage in particular. That no matter who you are, simply embracing Him will lead to His grace in your life think about all this in the context of our Advent season or Christmas season, however you'd like to describe it. A season where we love to celebrate comfort and joy and peace on earth and lovingly give gifts and decorate our homes and church buildings. But Redeemer Bible Church, what God wants from us this holiday season, listen carefully, is not mere Mouths moving perfunctorily in the singing of Christmas carols. Or your reluctant yet religious attendance. Or even a dutiful Advent devotional study like you might be doing. He wants all of us, Redeemer Bible Church, Christian or non-Christian, to embrace Jesus as His Son, as His chosen Messiah. And He wants us to do so because He wants a relationship with us. Because He loves us. He wants us to enjoy it starting now and fully one day in His presence forever. And so as I say every week, if you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus in faith, I hope today will be the day. Look at what the needy did in our passage today. There's no religious ceremony. There's no ritual you have to go through. There are no magic words. You simply come to Him in faith and belief that He alone is God's chosen one to save you. And again, as we say each week, if you have any questions about this, or you'd like someone to take a moment to pray for you or pray with you, we've got a prayer team that will be in the back at the end of our service. You'll recognize them with the little lanyards they've got on. They are prepared. They are qualified to spend a few moments with you if you would like. But my beloved Christian friends, Redeemer Bible Church member or non-member, friends, look to our glorious Christ this Christmas. The one Born as a little helpless baby, all grown up in this passage, ministering to the needy. Friends, this is the same one who has called you to be his child. This is the same one who has drawn you in, with whom you have a relationship. The one who loves you unconditionally today, no matter what you've done. That's why, friends, we don't go through a Christmas season or an Advent season with hopeless and downcast and joyless attitudes. Because just as Jesus arrived at Gennesaret to bring healing and grace to a lush garden region nonetheless stained with brokenness, Jesus arrives to bring gospel healing and grace to your life which has been and continues to be painfully affected by the same curse of sin. And so, Christian friends, listen, if you're looking around the world this Christmas and you're hearing in your heart something along the lines of, boy, tidings of comfort and joy just doesn't hit like it used to. Don't believe it. Because the same hope and light that arrived at the event of Jesus' birth some 2,000 years ago is the same hope and light that we celebrate and share and enjoy today. And it's that very hopeless feeling or sad and depressed and joyless feeling that you're dealing with at the start of this holiday season that Jesus came to deal with. It's those exact thoughts in your mind about not feeling like decorating this year or I don't want to go to this family celebration this year that Jesus came to address. That's why he came, to break into this world with healing and grace and reconciliation and restoration that our earth and our hearts groan for. Friends, that's why we celebrate Advent. That's why we celebrate Advent. Christmas, even when we don't feel like it, because Jesus, our Messiah, has come. And we're going to celebrate the light and hope of Jesus Christ together now as we partake of the Lord's table or communion as it's also regarded. Now we've often done this, in fact, usually do this in the middle of our worship services, but we've done, as we've done on occasion before, this week we're doing it as a response at the end of our service. And as we always say, our time at the Lord's table is a very important one for believers to participate in, but not in a cavalier or perfunctory or sort of laissez-faire way. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says that he received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And then he goes on with these words of warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then, excuse me, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so friends, As we always say, take a moment, as we will in just a second here, to examine your hearts. But remember, this is not, have I been perfect this week and therefore deserve to take communion? Then none of us is taking communion. But this is, are there things in my heart that I am willfully leaving unresolved between either me and the Lord or me and another brother or sister in Christ? And as you recall in Matthew 5, Jesus says that we ought not even bother with our offerings and sacrifices if we've got something between us and a brother or sister go deal with that then come back to the altar he says so we'll take a moment or a few moments in just a minute here to pray quietly after I lead us in prayer but I don't want to discourage any of you who are truly followers of Jesus from taking the table if you're feeling guilty about something Because there's no better place to go than the presence of Jesus and no better thing to be reminded of than the sacrifice of Jesus when you are feeling guilt and shame. But do not partake of the table if doing so would be, in essence, a lie. Now, the logistics will be a little bit different today. We're at the end of our service or towards the end of our service and the men are actually going to come and pass out both elements as we sing this song that... Some of you have never heard before, but we sang last year, and we love singing at Christmas when we get the chance. And so you'll get the bread, and then right after that you'll get the cup. Hang on to them, and as we usually do, we'll take a moment. Lauren's going to lead us in prayer for the bread. We'll take the bread together. We'll pause. Then I'll come lead us in prayer for the cup, and we'll take the cup together. So let's pray. I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll take just just a few moments to examine our hearts and talk to the Lord as we need to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the display of your grace and mercy in this passage of Matthew 14. We thank you that you, Jesus, are our Messiah who has come to save all who will simply embrace you in faith and that you are never worn out by us. You are never impatient with us. Your arms are ever opened wide for all who will come, whether for the first time or in need of fresh comfort and mercy and assurance. So as we come to your table now, help us to keep these things in mind. Of the glorious ministry of our Christ for us. Of the sacrifice that He has made in our place so that our sins can be dealt with and we might be restored to our Father who loves us. So as we eat this bread and drink this cup, I pray that any and all who are here today who are not believers, who are not followers of Jesus, would be content to just watch what Christians do with the Lord's Supper and that any who are Christians and can do so with any amount of of true integrity about their communion with you and with others, that we would enjoy this and proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer and meditation for just a few minutes.